Standard Issue for all women. Howdy champs, welcome to episode 9 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I own a Paddington bear bought for me by Sean Connery, but more on him later. Connery, not Paddington. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm both small and far away. And I'm Jen Offord and my favourite group of animals is the Mustard family. Later on, I'm chatting Bond, James Bond. I talk about the best performances by women on TV so far this year. I spent some time with Paula Maguire, who's in training to become the first person ever to swim around the coast of mainland Britain. Our Sarah answers a question about food and chat etiquette. And I do Disney's Lady and the Tramp. But first, nuclear panic, peacock's testicles and constitutional monarchy. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we've given up reading the news to scuttle amid the rack and ruin of humanity in a bid to find a can opener for our bunker of tinned goods. Intercontinental ballistic cock measuring has reached an all-time high, with the world forced to face the reality that two socially challenged man-babies aren't just in possession of the planet's worst haircuts, but also some of its worst weapons of mass destruction. As North Korea and the US engaged in a war of words, which could possibly spiral into a full-blown nuclear winter, gag writers and experts alike found themselves wondering how their reputations would fare if they were wrong. Although I don't suppose that'll matter when we're all walking a scorched earth in search of food slash relatives slash news of how Game of Thrones would have ended. One man who was keen to defend Trump's indefensible position was his evangelical advisor, Robert Jeffress, who claimed that God would be good with the US taking out Kim Jong-un. He later tweeted, When POTUS draws a red line, he will not erase, move or back away from it. Which is true. When Trump draws a red line, he bangs his hands together and reaches for a different coloured crayon while Melania clears space on the fridge. She might be better to climb inside that bad boy, like the woman in Sunderland whose life was saved when the coolest of white goods fell on her during a suspected gas blast that shot her back door more than 20 metres and over a fence. Getting in a fridge also worked for Indy, in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But the less said about the time Spielberg and Lucas took a massive shit on my childhood, the better. It's the Nazis, Stephen. It's always the Nazis. And if you thought nuclear war was looking increasingly likely in America's future, if indeed it has a future, civil war started to look like a distinct possibility too, as shamelessly racist Uberwazzocks took to the streets of Virginia ostensibly to protest the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, but actually to have a good old moan about how difficult it is to be a white man in the developed world nowadays. Diddums. Walking the streets like peacocks who've been told their balls are particularly well-formed, the right-wing waved tiki torches like middle-class people at Glastonbury trying to ward off mosquitoes, except not mosquitoes, but anyone but straight white men. And not wasps either. And I'm not just talking about the cunts that sting you. Donald Trump eventually made a statement in which he condemns, and I quote, hatred, bigotry and violence on many sides. Mate. The only people who needed to be worried about hatred, bigotry and violence on many sides were the poor fucking students surrounded by Nazi sympathisers. Even Nigel Farage was prepared to say he was shocked by events in America, even though no one believed him, or indeed asked him. Surprise! This week, laughing in the face of Tory MP Jacob Rees-Mogg, was James Chapman, former Chief of Staff for Brexit Secretary David Davis. That's not the surprise, because, let's face it, we've all laughed in the face of Jacob Rees-Mogg. But we were astonished to learn Davis was deemed important enough to have ever had staff with such a Billy Big Balls title. Though Rees-Mogg claimed his party was broadly united and the public had accepted its Brexit fate, Chapman hit back over what he said would be a calamity for the country and prevent the Tories from ever gaining a majority government again. Still, we suppose, if there's one good thing to come from this clusterfuck. And Chapman, the Daily Mail's former political editor and seemingly reformed character, didn't stop there. In a series of tweets about the current state of play regarding Brexit, whatever the fuck that is, Chapman said, Let's be honest, if we had an effective electoral law, leading Brexiteers would now be in jail. Hashtag, where's my 350 million a week, Boris? This looks unlikely to stop what's been dubbed Mogmentum, 
the movement that wants little Lord Fomplemog to be the next Conservative leader. Yet, disappointingly, Mogmentum is not about cats. And although a cat, even a dead cat, definitely has better leadership qualities, Rhys Mogg came second in a leadership poll on conservativehome.com, despite not even being listed as an option. Whether continued Mogmania will lead to him claiming to be bigger than Jesus remains to be seen. Monarchists showed yet again that they don't really understand how monarchy works, with the Sun reporting that 51% of people surveyed thought Prince Charles should not be allowed to be king when the Queen dies, if indeed the Queen ever dies. The poll came after Channel 4 aired new tapes of the original People's Princess talking about her husband's affair with Camilla Parker Bowles, allowing people who just can't leave it be to make themselves feel really special by proving their continued loyalty to a woman who's been dead for 20 years by raking over her private life and assisting her son stab his father in the back. Just FYI, some readers, if shoving your cock somewhere it wasn't supposed to be were enough to preclude you from being king, we'd have been exclusively ruled by women and eunuchs. Constitutional monarchy is not a democracy. And if it was, I'd vote Imelda Staunton. You'd think that taking a piss would be, well, a piece of piss. Over in Berlin, city authorities are addressing gender equality in public toilets with the call for an equivalent of the currently all-male pissoirs, public urinal facilities, that dot the German capital. Authors of a new 99-page city strategy paper write that pissoirs are useful in discouraging Waldpinkeln, i.e. free-range pissing, predominantly done by blokes. Providing them for all genders could also save water, as us birds allegedly flush a standard bog on average of three times each visit. Women's urinals do already exist, including the charmingly <clears throat> named Girly by an Italian company, but Berlin's considering a one-model-suits-all approach. Your urinal, my urinal, everyone's urinal. More news next week, if indeed there is a next week. Mother, if you're listening, it was me who smashed the front door, not the wind. Ma, I'm sorry, it was me who broke your bed. I was bouncing on it when you were at work. I'm also sorry I overheard you telling your mate it was due to you going hell for leather. Mum, it was still Michael, not me, who cut an M shape in the cat's fur. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we remember that no matter how great it is to be a woman, there's always someone waiting to punch you in the tits. Women in Texas may soon have to buy separate medical insurance to ensure they're covered if they find themselves needing an abortion. Opponents have dubbed the separate premium rape insurance after it became clear there would be no exception in cases of rape or incest. The Senate approved the bill, which now awaits the governor's thumbs up. No jokes here, to be honest, unless you count the fact that the bill itself is a massive fucking joke, but gloriously unfunny. Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Millican, and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. I'm recording this at home, uh, so if there's any noises, you might hear the clock uh, in the background. I hope not, but if you hear that, I apologise. Um, and also, there's a good chance you might hear the tinkling of my dog's collar because he is currently running around wondering what I'm doing and why I'm not tickling his belly or kissing his face. Um, I think, I don't know if he knows that kisses are affection, because sometimes I kiss really hard because I really love him, and I hope he knows that that's a good thing and that he's not being admonished for something um if anybody has an insight let me know that would be great thanks um i'm going to answer a question this week uh from saza marsh great name saza saza marsh uh, on twitter and the question is should i have told a very well-known older actor that he had egg yolk down his chin as we were having a lovely chat now this is a tricky one it's a tricky one um it's i don't know if it's a different thing because it's a well-known actor if it was your friend would you have gone look at the fucking state of you sort your face out but because it's a very well-known actor and because he's older maybe it's a respect thing as well i think what you should have done is licked it i think you should have just 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 stepped over those boundaries and just licked his chain and see what happened after that. You might well be married to him now. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I'm going to answer another quick question, if I may. Uh, another question. Um, Diana Mahon says, uh, this is also on Twitter. Uh, thanks for your question, Diana. Uh, what is the first thing you reach for after a show? Now, 
It's a good question. It sort of depends on <laughs> whether it's gone really well or whether it was just all right. Uh, if it's gone really well, I have some chocolate. If it's gone uh, all right, I'll have loads of chocolate. So it's the same thing. It's just different amounts, different uh, different volume, if you like. Is it just one of those little bars uh, that sometimes feels like a waste of time? Or is it like an A4 bar that I just gradually plough my way through as we drive home? Uh, thank you so much for your questions, guys. Bye-bye. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at StandardIssueUK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard Issue for all women. Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box. If you're familiar with Standard Issue, you'll know that, as our self-appointed expert on television... I like to do a roundup at year's end of the best performances by women on TV. Or, since it's all objective anyway, let's call them my favourite performances. This year, however, that's not going to be possible, mostly because we're only in August and already there's enough to talk about to fill an entire podcast, and that's before we reach the autumn programming rush. So now seems as good a time as any to sit back and reflect on what we've had the good fortune to enjoy this year. Generally, I've tended to order my list as some kind of competition for my heart, or, at the very least, my remote control. But while Tatiana Maslany continues to play seven roles on the same show, it makes gauging anybody else's efforts somewhat tricky. Orphan Black's leading lady slash ladies continues to shine. I'm not sure what I can tell you about Maslany that I haven't already, but needless to say, like Kerry Russell, who continued to quite literally kick ass in the fifth series of The Americans, or like Julia Louis-Dreyfus in Veep, if I'm making any kind of list of the best actresses on TV, if they are on TV, they are on the list. The other reason I'm not going to put this in any sort of order is there is already three performances that I couldn't actually separate if I tried. Objectively great, reputation-making performances. I'm going to start with Danielle Brooks in Orange is the New Black, whose brilliant turn is all the more remarkable for the fact that it came in what was one of the more disappointing series of TV this year. The decision to set the fifth series of the prison drama over just a few days was bold, but it did not work, stranding many characters in a single mood for 13 episodes, which got very old very quickly. But not so with Brooks, who sort of epitomised something I once saw Robert Duvall say, that it's so much more moving to watch someone trying not to cry than it is to watch someone sobbing. She brought real depth and nuance to a season that was often lacking it. And while the series has left her, and indeed all the inmates' futures uncertain, what I will say is that whatever Brooks does next, I will watch it. Also vying for that theoretical top spot is stoic as fuck Elizabeth Moss, who was central to the success of the adaptation of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. The flashbacks and the inspired voiceover undoubtedly helped put the flesh on the bones of Offred that the film adaptation had so spectacularly failed to do. But it was Moss herself that made you believe that beneath that necessarily inscrutable veneer was a really pissed-off woman just waiting to escape. I have absolutely no doubt she will win the Emmy next month. In fact, people should start flipping over tables if she doesn't. Up against her is Carrie Coon, who deserves an Emmy, but probably not this year because she was nominated for the wrong fucking series. I've not seen Fargo, and I'm sure she's excellent in it, but it's short consolation for the fact that The Leftovers now joins The Wire and Deadwood in the list of genuine works of art that have been entirely ignored by their peers. Since I live in hope that one day you'll take my advice and just friggin' watch it, I'm going to keep it short and spoiler-free here. What I can say is Coon is absolutely radiant as Nora Durst. The other characters love her, the audience loves her, the camera loves her. Watching her sit alone and broken in a hotel room with a sprinkler system sending water cascading down her face is among the most gorgeous images TV's yet produced. Shame on you, Emmy voters, shame on you. But wait, I hear you say, that's all dramas and Americans. Indeed, and talking of awards, it's often noticed that comedic actresses get a lot less kudos than dramatic ones. With the case of Michaela Cole and Sharon Horgan, it's probably because they actually write the material themselves. It's no bad thing that great writing is getting the attention it deserves, obviously, but it often means that people forget to mention how completely brilliant they are on screen. Both Cole and Horgan are a treat to watch. Charismatic enough to remain likeable even when they are doing something terrible and utterly without vanity. Women of comedy, I salute you. And carrying on that fine tradition, I have to quickly mention Daisy Mae Cooper, 
who was all sorts of promising in BBC Three's unexpected treat, This Country, which the actress wrote with her brother and co-star, Charlie. See, we're running out of time already and there's still so much to say. My applause, as always, to Diana Rigg, who continues to own every scene she is in in Game of Thrones. There is truly nothing like hearing a dame call a cunt a cunt. Emily Browning did so much with the role of dead wife in American Gods and formed a proper tree of a road trip pairing with Pablo Schreiber's Mad Sweeney, which is itself a genuinely terrific turn and probably my favourite on TV this year. Talking of competing for screen time with a scene stealer, in this case, the relentlessly charming Joe Gilgan, Ruth Negger remains terrific in Preacher. 2017's been good for the actress. She got nominated for an Oscar for Loving, which is possibly my favourite film release this year, and she's more terrific in Preacher than I have got time to go into here. Alison Brie more than held her own against an on-fire Mark Maron in Netflix wrestling comedy Glow. Brie once did Charleston with Vincent Carthesa on Mad Men that was so fucking charming. I'm surprised they didn't cut to a 10 from Len. But she's also capable of playing complete pain in the arse and those two threads really come together here. Plus, she got thrown around a wrestling ring, which is way more than your average sitcom asks of any actress. Also on fire, or certainly full of it, was Frida Pinto, who was steely as they come in Sky's Gorilla. Now, I'm sure there'll be someone I've forgotten, or not forgotten, but you'll assume that I have. So I'm available for Keep It Nice A debate on Twitter, where I'm at that Dunleavy. And I'll be back to complete this list later in the year. And there's loads of great things coming up, which I'm sure will help me fill it. Tandy Newton will undoubtedly be the best thing about Westworld. Uh, Christina Hendricks is shortly on our screens in Tin Star. Maggie Gyllenhaal arrives soon after in The Deuce. Morven Christie returns in another series of The A Word. Nikki Amuka Bird has a new series starting at the BBC. And Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror, one of the best sources of great roles for women, returns to Netflix in the autumn. Who the fuck needs to take their pyjamas off ever again? The name's Noonan. Mickey Noonan. No prizes shaken or stirred for guessing what I'm talking about. Yep, it's James Bond, 007. Ian Fleming's spy and a 24 and counting film franchise as British as fish and chips, rain-drenched caravan holidays and a stiff upper lip. Or, you know, martinis, guns and girls. Side note, the character has been played by a Scot, two Englishmen, a Welshman and an Irishman. Whether they've all walked into a bar together remains unconfirmed. 2017 has been pretty big for Bond, Roger Moore went to the big raised eyebrow in the sky and Daniel Craig's previous insistence that he'd rather slash his wrist than play Bond again has done a U-turn into a two-film lock-in thanks to a reported £150 million deal. Enough bunts for a never-ending supply of nugget-cupping shorts. Bond also has five anniversaries this year, one film each for the main Bonds, by which I mean Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig. Sozard, George Lazenby, just never going to happen. And no, David Niven spoofing it to the max against Smirsh doesn't count. Over the past 55 years, the Bond franchise has had many criticisms levelled at it. Racism, silliness, predictability, the sheer brain-flattening dullness of Quantum of Solace. And rightly so. And then, of course, there's the misogyny. But is James Bond really sexist? <laughs> yes, of course it is, but I'll come back to that. Let's do some celebrating first, because as much as I have issues with the whole women as playthings trope that runs throughout the Bondverse, past, present and no doubt future, I'm a big Bond fan. Sit me in front of a Bond film, any Bond film, and I'm a kid at my grandma's again. Me and my cousins transfixed by the action and the gadgets and the exotic locations, the kind of easy glamour it's hard to find on a council estate in Heighton. And so, happy 50th birthday you only live twice. Connery's fifth outing as 007, because man, they really cranked them out back then. With a script penned by Roald Dahl, it's a more is more dream come true with space travel, killer piranhas, ninjas, a logic-defying stint where Bond turns Japanese and a properly pissed-off Persian cat. The plot's got more holes than Swiss cheese, the women barely warrant a name, and it possibly marked the end of Bond as a serious spy series. For a while, at least. My favourite bit of You Only Live Twice is that it makes me think of You Only Move Twice, which is one of my top ten Simpsons episodes. Scorpio. It's the big 4-0 for the spy who loved me, Moore's third bit of bondage and probably the most spoofed of the Bonds, which in itself is a bit meta, given all of Moore's outings feel like a pastiche of what's come before. I hasten to add that he's actually up there for me, being the Bond I most grew up on. 
Now, I'm 40 years old, and to be honest, these days some of my special effects look a bit shonky too. In Spy, ticker tape comes out of watches, Bond shoots someone with a ski pole, and the bad guy has a needlessly complicated setup that delivers his victims to the fishes. Two nuclear missiles are exploded, myriad boats and helicopters blown to smithereens, a Lotus Esprit narrowly escapes drowning, and the English language is routinely strangled in a series of puns bad enough to make the word pun blush. It is gloriously silly Bond nonsense, and by that I mean it's fucking ridiculous, but I had a lovely time. A man bites a shark to death. It's also the first of the Bond franchise that sees a woman equal 007 in all areas. Her acting may be as stiff as Bond's seemingly priapic member, but Barbara Back's major Anya Amasova is as able as 007 to take out a bad guy and save the day. No mention of Spy is complete, of course, without doffing a cap to the hunk of comedy gold that is Alan Partridge's reenactment of the opening scene. He's being chased by these Russian shits in black jumpsuits with lemon piping. The Living Daylights, Dalton's first of just two appearances as Bond, is 30. And to be fair, on the women front, he's a proper gent who actually woos as well as uses the woman he's paired with. What's more, you never see them at it. Because AIDS. Yep, being filmed in the 1980s, when the media was scaring the living shit out of anyone daring to have sex, means that Dalton's Bond keeps his trouser snake in its basket. That's right, its trouser basket. It is a corking action film. Dalton is much more subdued and deadpan than Moore, but the gags are still there, and the focus is firmly on plot and a return to Ian Fleming's original character. It's well worth watching, if only for an almost throwaway moment, when a man gets eaten by a sofa at Q's Gadget HQ. Lovely stuff. 20 years ago, Tomorrow Never Dies was released, and its storyline following the insanity of one man desperate to control the media by starting World War III feels eerily prescient. I feel a bit sick. Also, I'd forgotten what a soft spot I had for Brosnan's take on The Spy, which is wonderfully pitched between Connery and Moore, if let down by some sloppy writing and a tendency to be more action than thriller. It is still a damn good ride, though, with Jonathan Price clearly having a ball as megalomaniac media mogul Rupert Murdoch. Sorry, Donald Trump. Sorry, Elliot Carver. Our villain's wife, Paris, has a romantic past with Bond, and it's interesting to see him actually show feelings for a woman. I mean, she's dead before you know it, but for a while they do allow her to be a bit more 3D than is usual. Much is made of kick-ass sidekick Waylin, played by Michelle Yeoh, and while she's hard as nails and all action, her depiction's a little bit cartoonish, and she does, in the end, need our hero to save her, because she is, after all, just a bird. Also, will no one think of the faceless henchman? And so to Daniel Craig and Skyfall, his third bonding which was released five years ago. The set pieces are spectacular, the script is cracking with the dry one-liners we've come to expect from our favourite spy, and Bond's main woman is his mentor rather than a lover. Yes, writers! At last! Clearly she has to die, as does the woman he sleeps with to get information. And yet, there's that pesky topic I said I'd return to. Sexism in Bond, where all women are disposable. Do you expect me to die? No, Mr Bond. I expect you to treat women as equals and give an actual shit when they cark it, you philandering git. Don't even think about applying the Bechdel test, pal. Even its modern outings, with most recent director Sam Mendes insisting on renaming Bond girls Bond women, portray women in a way that would have been considered out of date 20 years ago. Bond has long been billed as boy's own adventure fodder, doling out a macho fantasy of rye banter, bang bang, rat-a-tat, boom action and interchangeable women, willing to open their legs and lay down their lives for our playboy protagonist. There's a scene in Spy where Bond meets a woman, a minute later he's kissing her face off, and literally a second after that she takes a bullet for him. He's gutted, obviously. And by that, I mean he barely acknowledges she's dead before he scarpers after his real quarry, the bad guy. Even the women in the title, or perhaps more accurately, tittle sequences, tend to be completely bully bollocks, leaving grown men sniggering like schoolboys having glimpsed a sly silhouette of nipple. In fairness, that is much less so in the Craig era. There's no doubt that Bond is still a serial shagger, though, ripping through, on average, three or four women a film. Just the once, mind, he doesn't tend to stick around. And if he does start to fall for a woman, it usually means curtains for the lady in question. See, his wife, Vesper Lind, Paris Carver, Severine, etc. Now then, let's address those age differences between Bond and the women on whom he bestows his man juice. In fairness, they're much the same as most Hollywood age gaps, but they seem to be widening again, with a stonking 17 years between him and Spectre co-star Leia Sadu. In real life, 49-year-old Danny Craig's missus, Rachel Weiss, hang on a second, Rachel Weiss, Rachel Weiss, 
thanks, is, at 47, just two years younger than him. There was a massive hullabaloo around 2015 Spectre when it was announced that 51-year-old Monica Bellucci, 51, do they even make women that old, was to be a Bond woman. Her role marks a fascinating change for a Bond woman too, as 007 pumped her for information and then pumped her for, oh no, wait, as you were. And what about the infamous Bond baddies? There have been a few female rotters throughout the series, but only one real villain, Rosa Klebb in 1963's From Russia With Love, and her main weapon of choice was a shoe. Come on, Bond writers, women can be megalomaniac arseholes too. Stop letting the blokes have all the fun, before meeting a preposterous and sticky end. Perhaps the biggest coup for women in regard to Bond came in the 1990s, when Judi Dench took on the role of M, first appearing opposite Brosnan in 1995's GoldenEye. What a dame. And also reflective of real life, because Stella Rimington had been head of MI5 for three years before Dench made her appearance. And yet, after seven glorious performances, Dench's M was killed off and replaced with... a chap. Albeit Ray Fiennes, but still, it very much feels like a step backwards. The women in Bond still serve to drive plot. But why does he want to fire a nerve agent from Space James? Get rescued, yep, even M, and look pretty. James Bond will be back, and despite my reservations, I'll be watching. But it's time the writers pulled their socks up. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, our weekly celebratory knee slide across the well-watered turf of women's sport. I'm actually recording this from our Airbnb at the Edinburgh Fringe, where you might occasionally hear a ghostly whistle in the chimney in the living room due to what appears to be some kind of extreme weather event outside. Anyway, moving swiftly on, this week's brap brap braps go out to Great Britain women's 100 and 400 metre relay teams who sprinted their way to silver medals in their respective events at the Athletics World Championships last week. Asha Phillip, Desiree Henry, Dina Asher Smith and Daryl Nater, as well as Zoe Clark, Lavia Nielsen, Ailey Doyle and Emily Diamond were all absolutely fantastic and give us great hope for the future of British athletics, especially in a time where we're seeing a bunch of people from the sort of previous generation starting to retire. Fret ye not, there's going to be heaps more to see in, in the coming years. Elsewhere, South Africa's Casa Semenya once again bossed it in the 800 metres, which unfortunately reignited seven kinds of bullshit about her right to compete. And I, I, all I can really say to that is just bore the fuck off. In rugby, England recorded two victories in the group games of the Women's World Cup. Those were against Spain and Italy. And Host Nation Ireland also won both of their first two fixtures. Wales, unfortunately, came unstuck against New Zealand and Canada. The next games of the group stage are going to be tomorrow. That's Thursday, if you're listening on Wednesday. And we'll have more on that in the next couple of weeks. Starting on the 19th of August is the European Hockey Championships, and that's happening in Amsterdam. England will be hoping to defend their 2015 title. They're in the same group as Ireland, Scotland and Germany, and that's going to be covered on BT Sports, so make sure you check that out as well. Again, more to come on that as the tournament progresses, but I think those ladies will forgive me if I segue seamlessly now to another inspirational woman in the world of sport. That woman is Paula Maguire. I caught up with Glaswegian Paula while up here in Edinburgh to have a chat about how sports changed her life as she embarks on a mission to become the first person, not woman, the first person to swim the entire coast of mainland Britain. I am here with Paula Maguire, who is a motivational speaker and a writer and various other things. Paula first came to my attention five years ago now, roughly, thereabouts, when I was doing... I might have mentioned once or twice that I've tried all the Olympic sports. Anyway, at the same time, Paula, he's from Glasgow, was trying all the Commonwealth sports in time for the Commonwealth Games. So we sort of chatted about that and feel a bit like I know you over, over the years that have followed. But I've never actually met Paula before, so this is very exciting. So... You've kind of gone on from doing this Commonwealth Challenge. Tell us a bit about why you got involved in this Commonwealth Challenge in the first place. 
Yeah, like like you say, it's lovely. Like it's lovely to finally meet you because I know your face <laughs> from all the Olympic sports, and you kind of kept me going Aww. while I was trying trying the, the seventeen sports. Not so many as in the Olympics, thank God. Um, <laughs> I missed out quite a lot of the ones that you've that you've already tried. I started doing the, the Commonwealth sports mainly as a really really selfish thing. So I started it to try to re-engage with the world, to try to get myself back into the world again. At the time, I was 30, 31, and I'd got to the point in life where, you know, as, as everybody does, that I couldn't leave the house <laughs> anymore. So I had really bad social anxiety, really bad mental health, um, depression, everything that comes along with that. And I'd, I'd had that since, you know, for as, as long as I can remember. But it started to really impact on my life. So I had started cutting friends out. I couldn't really leave the house on my own. Um, I would go to my work and I would come back and that would be me. Um, I couldn't answer the phone. I couldn't, I couldn't eat in public. There were just so many things that I didn't feel able to do anymore because they brought me stress and, and brought the, the panic attacks on. So the Commonwealth challenge was me just saying, right, this is my last chance to do something for myself, to become the adult that I thought that I would be, to, you know, to to engage with life again and, and just to be back out in the world. So we, we set up a blog called Paula Must Try Harder as a bit of a nod to my PE teachers because they always wrote on my PE report cards, Paula Must Try Harder because I never, ever tried a sport. And I know like you, you were just not into sport at all. Now you are the sporting goddess that I see in, <laughs> see in front of me. I hadn't learned to ride a bike when I was young. I was terrified of water, so I'd never learned to swim. And I'd just managed to avoid doing sport. So this seemed like a great way of just getting back out there, starting to meet people and maybe helping my mental health along the way. How did you feel that the challenge changed you? I now say, and it sounds so ridiculous and maybe a bit reductive, but I say now that sport and adventure saved my life. I was on the path to either hospitalisation or doing something drastic because there just didn't seem any other way out of the situation that I was in. Being able to go out and to, to just scare myself every single day. I was terrified to go out and learn to ride a bike because I had to ask people for help and, and that was skills that I just had never built up. So everything was frightening for me. It helped me to put that into context. I'd never really had perspective over the fear before because I'd never challenged it. So I found answering the phone as terrifying as running from a bear. I didn't know what I was meant to be frightened of anymore. I just had no context. So when I went out and I realised that these things that I had been so terrified of for such a long time, of basically making a fool of myself and of people having a bad opinion of me, just weren't as scary as as the thought, the, the fear of them was, you know, and and it is a cliche that, um, you know, fear is, is the biggest fear itself. And I do really believe that that's true because now I don't really, <laughs> I don't really get frightened of things anymore. Now, when I'm frightened, I call it excitement. It's the same feeling. I get the same butterflies and the same nervous energy and things. But so far, I've always won. You couldn't swim until how long ago is it? About two and a half weeks ago. <laughs> and then in April next year, you are going to swim around the coast of mainland Britain. Why in God's name would you do that? It's a culmination of so many things. Water has always been one of my biggest fears. I scalded myself with boiling hot water when I was about 18 months old. And while I don't remember it, obviously it's messed with my mind. And it, the fear just manifested itself in a, a fear of open water, of large bodies of water. So I'm not afraid to shower, which I've been asked before. Um, I'm, I'm afraid of, you know, I couldn't walk over bridges. I couldn't go near a particularly big puddle. You know, I was really threatened by, by bodies of water. And it just feels like this is the last one that I really need to conquer. That I really need to go out and just... Um, and just prove that it's possible to overcome a phobia. So I've been I've been learning, as you say, I did the, the Glasgow 2014 sport. So I had to start learning to swim as part of that. And it took a long time. You know, we're, we're five years down the road now, four years down the road. And um, and now I'm at the point that, as, as I said, two and a half weeks ago, I, I finally put the breathing into my front crawl and, and I'm a swimmer now. And it just seems like this is something that, that I should do. You know, when you get one of those ideas, 
it just doesn't go away. And no one has ever attempted it. So surely somebody's got to. No one has ever even set out to do it, as far as I know. Sean Conway, the adventurer, um, in 2013, he did Lands End to Johnny Groats. So I'm going to, you know, try and do his bit and then add another another side onto it. As and when I do it, I'll be the first person to have done it. And I'll also be the first woman to have done Lands End to Johnny Groats. So um, it's, it's quite a big, big undertaking, but loads to play for. I'm going to mitigate all the risk that I possibly can you know I know that I'll be I'll be frightened jumping in that first day but um it's something that I can cope with I have all the you know the mental tools to get by I'm training myself physically to do it and I truly believe that we can train ourselves to do any of these big you know people have done big endurance events and it's we can train ourselves to do things that we didn't believe were possible and I think that um as long as I go in with the right attitude and the right support and the right people around me that I'm going to smash this. There's going to be, you know, a support boat and crew and possibly a kayaker and my husband, Jerry is going to be on land doing it. I'm going to be surrounded by people who know what they're talking about. All I need to do is swim. And I can do that now. But it is the mental side of things that, that, that really damage people's attempts. So I think that um, I'm in the right place and mm. the people that I have around me are in, are in the right place as well. Are you doing any mental training for it? Are you... At the minute, as I say, so I'm, I'm, still, I'm still taking swimming lessons. Mm. Um, I have an amazing swimming coach, Robert, who um, in Scotland does all the open water events and things mm. like that. So he, he's fabulous. And he, he really knows the psychology of, of swimming and, and about overcoming phobias and things. I'm in the gym and things like that, you know, doing all the the cardio and the horrible, horrible weights, but not as much maybe as I should be. The, the mental side of things, I'm really in a place now that I can talk myself round from a lot of things, which is great. Sports Scotland have been great and are offering me sessions with their psychologist, which obviously I'm going to take up because he's dealt with you know a lot of big athletes and, and big endurance events. But I, I feel like I've been my own therapist over the last couple of years um, and I would never suggest to anyone that that therapy and counselling is not useful I've done it for a long time and it would be the first protocol for anyone who's struggling with anxiety and things for me getting out there and just doing things was the only thing that I could do so I've now got to my, got myself in, in the position that I, I can talk myself around from panic attacks I know I know my trigger points and I know how to how to deal with them I had my first panic attack in open water about a month and a half ago and I came out instead of feeling really down about it I came out feeling like amazing like superwoman because I had managed to have a panic attack in water and brought myself round and survived it so it's just about building on those successes and I've, I've kind of built myself up to a point now that mentally I'm in a really strong place and I feel like going forward that'll that'll just get better. Sport is just one of the most incredible things to, to just bring you around. For one thing, it demands focus. Mm. You know, you're focused on something that's outside of yourself, on something that, if, whether that be part of a team or, you know, even just the skill that it takes to do that particular sport. For that half an hour game or that hour cycle, you're just focused on getting yourself through it, on doing the right, like pedaling in the right direction, you know, doing, doing all those things. And for me, because I'd never learnt them before, that was a real focus. You know, I really had to concentrate before I knew it, I picked up a new skill, but I'd also had an hour anxiety free, which for me was a miracle. And if you're not enjoying sport, then you're doing the wrong sport. Do something else. So you're going to do this incredible swim. Is there anything people can do to, to assist you? As you mentioned that, um, I have a Kickstarter for the film of the swim, so we'll be making a documentary of... And it's not just going to be me swimming for six hours a day. There will be about the you know the mental health aspects of it and how I'm preparing and things like that. So even if you're not into swimming, um, hopefully it'll be quite an interesting piece to watch. So there's a Kickstarter. The swim is called The Big Mad Swim Around Britain. Um, as no one has ever done it before, if you Google it, you'll probably find, find me. You can sponsor that. You can get involved in that. Um, there's loads of little things that you can, trinkets that you can take away from that. I'm also doing it for the Mental Health Foundation, just to raise awareness and to raise some funds for the charity. So you can sponsor me on Just Giving for that. Um, and you can just follow me on paulamusttryharder.co.uk or pmusttryharder on Twitter and social media and just cheer me on come down throw cake at me I'm starting I'm starting next April it's throw cake sponge <laughs> throw sponge cake at me um, I'm starting next April hopefully around about the, the 23rd St George's Day because I'm starting at Land's End and hopefully it'll take me 
until October or so just come down and, and follow me and you know not not follow me you don't need to stalk me uh, come down and wave me on cheer me on and and just support me in that way it'll make all the difference you can follow Paula on Twitter at P must try harder and you can check out her website are you looking for people to join you at all? People are always welcome to come and, yeah. and swim a bit of it. Um, Jen, I am I'm looking at you right now. Come and come and swim a mile of it with me. I'm also, um, you know, I'm look, I'm still looking for a boat. So if anyone has a a spare boat that they <laughs> what kind of boat are you looking for? A boat that basically I can sleep on in between the tides because there will be times when you know I'm out for five hours and then we can't there's no point in going back to land I just need to sleep it off and then get back into the next tide so I'll need a boat for um, my crew and I to to rest on but if anybody has you know a boat in six months <laughs> of their life to take off yeah. then get in touch and you can be part of this incredible adventure Paula that is absolutely incredible um, all power to you thank you very much for joining us That was Paula Maguire talking about her big mad swim around Britain. There was more of that interview if you're interested. Paula and I talked more about bonkers challenges, of which I've done a couple myself, about the power of sport to change people's lives and about her struggles with anxiety and overcoming them. That will be available on the podcast channel shortly, so keep your eyes and indeed your ears peeled. Welcome to the Navy Does Disney, and uh, there's a there's a very special guest in the room. Want to say hello? Is it me? It is you. <laughs> I'm just looking around the room, thinking I don't know who it is. Um, <laughs> no, it's like this is your life. We're about to bring Mickey's old headmistress in. <laughs> Were you my old headmistress, Sarah? <laughs> I would have done a better job than yours did. Cheeky. <laughs> What a start. Let's talk about Disney now. Yes, please. Yeah, okay. I'm prepared. I've done the work. Delivy, what Disney did you do this week? Uh, This week I did 1955's Lady and the Tramp. I was quite surprised to see it was that early, um, because... Did they have dogs then? Yeah. (laughs) But in a lot of ways it doesn't seem that old. The animation's quite good, you know, but in other key ways it really does, which I will get to. Um, It's re-released a few times, including 1980, which is, I'm guessing, when I saw it would have made me about seven. I remember liking it, although before I watched it again, I failed to recall a single thing about it apart from the spaghetti scene, which I think was in the poster, so I don't even think that's something I'm remembering from the film. It's a bit of a spoiler in a poster, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the key, like the key romantic <laughs> moment. Why did you do sharp intake of breath when... when, when I don't, I don't really know why, to be honest. I just it, It's sort of something that I've started doing. No one really knows why. <laughs> <laughs> um, has everybody else seen it? I know I saw it when I, when I was a kid and I was born in 75, so I probably saw it the same time yeah. you did. Maybe not the same day. Um, but I also re-watched it because so many things from my childhood were brilliant then and are terrible now. Yeah. Uh, and so I watched it two nights ago, so uh, okay. recent. So I could probably quote some if you... I won't. It's fine. Uh, have you seen it? I have seen it several times, I think, but when I was a kid, and I haven't re-watched it, but I did, and this is a theme now running through our Dunleavy Does Disney, I'm fairly sure I used to fancy Trump. What? <laughs> the cartoon dog. I was about to say what the fuck, but we've already had my Moscow Hound-based revelation, yeah. so... <laughs> I don't know what a leg to stand on here. No. I've yet to find a cartoon creature that I find attractive, but, you know, we've got a lot of films still to go. That's the weird one. She's a fancy Aramis from Dogtanian. What's wrong with her? Really? See, I think Trump is a bit... He felt a bit Danny Dyer to me. (laughs) I totally would, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Big tick from me. (laughs) Danny, if you're listening... <laughs> I'm not sure that I can quite express in podcast form what that face was that I just pulled. But I will say, Geezer's got a drawbridge. <laughs> that should have been in the film. That would have lifted the film for Yeah, it yeah. would have. That's a euphemism. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, it's a kid's film. Carry on. I have seen it, but not for many, many years. All I really remember is the spaghetti yeah. and the cats. Can I just say that it has ruined eating spaghetti for me because I can't do it unless there is a dog in the room. <laughs> that you end up kissing that. at the yeah. end of it. I fancy Trump. I put that on the table quite early. <laughs> Can you imagine there. what his breath is like? Okay, let's move no, on. No, but if you're also a dog... 
That wasn't in my scenario. Oh, okay. yeah. you want the dog in the... Oh, oh okay. But, but it's a really good way. I've just realised this is a really acceptable way that I could kiss my dog. You've <laughs> not been looking for reasons. You're just asking Kiss his tummy time. a lot and it often smells of wee. And I still crack on because I love him so much. Aww. Aww. <laughs> there. So, the without fancying one of the main characters, did you manage to like it? <laughs> well, it got off to a terrible, terrible start. Firstly, there's the credits, which comes with this awful, awful song. The rescue um, is all over again. It is. And, and up until this point, like, my my least favourite song, or the song I hate most in the world, is Valare. You know, Valare. Because A, A, I don't like it as a song. And B, I used to work in an Italian restaurant. And on a Friday night, we had a band. Well, not a band. Okay, two pricks and a guitar. And they used to play those terribly stock romantic songs, you know, like when the moon hits. Yeah, that yeah. shit. Oh, and when the oh, kitchen, oh. when the kitchen's screaming at you for you to take your last order, so we can all go home, and these two goons just barge in, like singing Valari, and it's the fifth time you've heard it that evening. And the couple decide they're not going to order; they're going to sit back and, oh, darling, this is nice, isn't it? Let's enjoy this. And they look wistfully at each other. And, you know, that can really make you hate a song. But I have to say, the opening song in this, I hate more than that. Just on a a songs at work basis, just a little uh, tangent here. I used to work in an old man's pub on Karaoke Sunday. And the first time you hear a 70-year-old sing Suck on My Chocolate Salty Balls by Jack, it is fucking hilarious. When he does it every week, you're ready to kill pensioners. You can't believe that it got that tired that quickly. But also, why don't you like Dean Martin? What is the matter with you, Hannah? It's it's largely to do with the... You see, any song can be bad if it's sung by someone who is appallingly bad. But also, you said... But I'm also not really a fan of Dean Martin. I do quite like that one, uh, Gentle on Your Mind, that one. Like. But you said two pricks and a guitar. Yeah. In my head, they're sharing it, and one is doing the, yeah. the chords, and one is doing the strumming. Is that it was exactly almost how that it was? bad, yeah. <laughs> and they were also not Italian, but. I like Valare. Really? <laughs> yeah, because they sing it. They used to sing it to Patrick Vieira at Arsenal. Vieira, and my best friend is called Vera, so we <laughs> sing it at her. So, so basically, like any word that starts with a V, you can put into the song. It, into the vagina. Yeah. Oh, oh. I mean, that's how I always enchant. Now you're ruining a song about an Arsenal great and my uh, best okay. friend. So you know. I'm also ruining it by saying vagina. That's not ruining it. It's making it better. Anyway, we, sing we, that need to, we need to crack on. We haven't, we're only Sorry, in the credits. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a short so, film, though, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> Immediately after that, after the terrible song, a quote comes up from Josh Billings, who I've looked up and he's sort of a little Mark Twain. And it says, <laughs> it says, in the whole history of the world, there is but one thing that money cannot buy, the wag of a dog's tail, which is both nauseating and a complete lie. Yeah. Right? And then the film opens with someone giving a dog as a Christmas present. Yeah, they don't know anything about the RSPCA, do no. they? So um, I used to have a, a window sticker when I was about eight on my window, because I didn't have a car, obviously, uh, on my bedroom window that said present pets are future problems. And they, it means present with the two meanings, you see, presents. That's present now. Yeah. Sorry, what, present two, two they've never seen a fucking Andrex <laughs> advert, have they? <laughs> What? Well, puppies for life, not just for Christmas. Don't oh, yeah. you remember that? Yeah, More than an Andrex just a joke. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was just like, just when you go to the loo, get a dog. Yeah. <laughs> to wipe your ass. A puppies for life, not for bum wiping. People always have chocolate Labradors, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't show up as bad as on the... On the... Oh. <laughs> anyway, this puppy, she's called Lady, and she is an extremely long-eared spaniel, which may or may not be the exact breed name. Um, and, but she's, she's she's actually a little bugger and she, like, she shouts until she gets her own way and she insists on sleeping in the bed. So it probably makes her the most realistic of all Disney pets, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I say yeah. that with someone who's got two arseholes as pets. Um, and she's got a couple... She means cats, by the way. <laughs> They're such pricks. Hello. <laughs> they miss me. I'm in Scotland. She, so she's got a couple of friends, a bloodhound who can't smell, whose name I can neither remember Joan, nor be bothered listening. to Google. And a Scottish terrier called Jock, who is played by Bill Thompson, who is also the voice of Droopy. Fun fact, right? Oh, now, what would you fact. say is the worst film accent ever? Sean Connery in The Untouchables, maybe? 
Uh, Sean Connery in anything where he's not Scottish. <laughs> yeah. Or, <laughs> Keanu, Keanu Reeves in Dracula is really, that's really bad. bad. Yeah. There's a Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, oh, that's, that's really bad. Oh, yeah. All of these are bad, right? But this accent, this is the worst accent in a film ever. It's, it's, and it's not the only terrible accent in this film, which I will get onto. But anyway, ladies happy, you know, what could possibly go wrong? We even have a scene where they're all sitting by the fire and her man owner, who we, who's, we only know as Jim Deer, says, I can't imagine anything ever replacing her in our lives. Which is the Disney equivalent of saying, only one more day on the job before I sail <laughs> off into the sunset. Um, I mean, honestly, Jim might as well have stood up and said, to bed, wife, where we can make fuck and possibly a baby that will replace the dog in our affections. You know when, when that happens in a film and they'll say, oh, I, I can't imagine anything being better than this. When I sit and watch a film like that with my husband, that's even if it's ten minutes into the film, we go, well, it was good, but it was shorter than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and imply that was the end of the film and yeah. it makes us very happy. Yeah. Also, people aren't dying, though. But actually, it, usually at that point in a Disney film, it does mean that the parents will explode. Or... Yeah. No, they, no they, they don't die. It's, like, it's slightly different. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile across shit. the road, the tramp... Is a stray. He's living on scraps. <laughs> he's living and on... that's a dog. Yeah. Just to specify, that's not an actual yeah. a tramp. A, a tramp. fit dog. Yeah. And he spends... <laughs> Sexy dog. He spends his time avoiding the, the dog catcher and freeing his friends from a, the, the van. Um, and his friends include Bull, who is named that because he is a bulldog, but also because it's a fairly accurate description of his English accent. Um, <laughs> is, he a, is he a cockney? I'm sorry? Is he a cockney? He is a Cockney, if indeed the that's what that accent it? they're aiming for is. Yeah. Is he like yeah. a Dick Van Dyke style? Yeah, but he does appear- periodically go a bit posh as well. It's it's the Seriously, I don't know where they got these accents from. Also, but... can I just specify that you don't actually know what dogs sound like? So this could be really yeah, Well, that is, that is true. <laughs> and I'd like to point out that when you said the phrase releases friends from a barn, it did sound like a euphemism for masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It really does. Oh, you sorry. are thinking about masturbation. I mean, it's, to be fair, it's no. He got his accordion out. But... <laughs> what about bugles? Are they being yeah, No, they're not. But so back at Lady's house, Jim Deer has successfully knocked up Darling, which is the only name we is know. She called Darling Deer. No, 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 no. no. They they're called Jim Deer and Darling because that's what they call each other, and therefore that's what the dog thinks their name is. Which is actually relatively endearing, given the fact yeah. that, that yeah, it's going to go over most five-year-olds' heads, though, isn't yeah. it? Okay, so Jim, but so then Jim automatically turns into a sexist pig who doesn't want the missus to walk the dog because exercise is bad for lady brains, and she doesn't want to play with the dog anymore because she's too busy knitting and showing no signs, no visible signs of being pregnant. Which is actually a really great example of that weird morality that's pervasive in Disney films. Kids can watch endless films in which the mother dies, but you can't show them being pregnant, which is just weird. I mean, I don't remember my mum being pregnant with me, but. Well I, watched no. this, well, I watched this when I was about seven. When I was about seven, almost every woman I knew was pregnant. So it's... Was that your When fault? you were seven? Yeah. Adult women friends? No, no, but... <laughs> no, you don't... Quite a weird kid. No, every woman I knew. So my mum's, my aunt, like my mum, oh. my aunts, they were all... How did I run the, the local WI? I did. <laughs> yeah. And why is she... I mean, knitting I understand, but you can't knit all the time and... I don't, you see, this is the bit that I didn't like, was that they were mean to the dog. They were. They were really mean to the dog. right? And the same time that this, this is happening, as if there's not enough disruption in her life at the minute, the tramp wanders into Lady's Garden, which is not a euphemism, <laughs> and tells her that the baby... Does he release his friends from the van? <laughs> in her garden. And tells her that the baby is about to ruin her life. Now, in the context of this film, and also in Mickey's head, he is the romantic lead. Mm -hmm. And as such, he is a quantum leap forward in terms of the amount of screen time he gets and the personality that he displays when you compare him to something like Prince Charming. Plus, he's really cynical. So, you know, what's Mm -hmm. not to like? He is fit. I've just remembered there's another cartoon dog I I fancy. Brian from Family Guy. From Family Guy. Yeah. Anyway, carry on, sorry. <laughs> it just <laughs> occurred to me. <laughs> I went through my Rolodex of dogs I fancy in cartoon form. I could hear them. That being coloured in. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's an actual Rolodex. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the baby, the baby arrives eventually and it looks like everything's going to be okay. 
By and eventually, do you mean in nine months' time? Yeah, well, no, because it's you don't know how pregnant she because it's yeah, you can't talk about minutes. that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. and Lady appoints herself to be the guardian of the baby, right? But then Jim, dear, and darling decide to fuck off for a couple of days, and this woman called Auntie Sarah comes to stay, and it all goes very badly have you wrong. Noticed, up until this point, I'm pretty sure you haven't seen Jim, dear, or darling's faces. No, you haven't. You get you to see, see Aunt Sarah's face. You do see her. So this is actually an enormously long setup for the main thrust of the story. I mean, if this guy's were making enduring love, the balloon would crash ten minutes before the film ended. Oh, right. It's it's anyway. It all goes to shit for Lady when Aunt Sarah unleashes her two Siamese cats, who are called Sai and Am, which might be a good as place as any to tackle the inevitable thing of racism in this film. America's got a really long tradition of racism towards China or China, as it's now known. <laughs> yeah. And these cats have, they've got slanted eyes, they've got terrible accents, they've got buck teeth, they're up to no good. It's pretty much breakfast at Tiffany's all over again. So obviously that's not good. Elsewhere we see a chihuahua who's got a terrible Mexican accent and spends most of his time asleep. How long does it take a Mexican to buy a dog? Chihuahuas, sorry. Does anyone anyone build a wall? Uh, No, no. Only a metaphorical one, yeah. Aunt Sarah decides to get the dog muzzled, and as we all know, nobody puts Lady in a muzzle. So she runs off and starts hanging around with the tramp, who calls her Pidge. Now, you've seen it recently. Did you Did you hear that as bitch the whole way through it? No, I heard it as Pidge. Oh, okay. Because I'm maybe not as looking for things as you are. Okay, also, maybe you've got better hearing, which that oh, yeah. kind of disturbed <laughs> me quite a lot. But we get loads more terrible accents. We get an Irish one, we get a Russian one, we get Italian one, we got a German one. We get a song by Peggy Lee, which is probably the only positive thing in the film. And she's playing a Pekingese dog who looks like she's just coming in after a night on the town. Or has eyeshadow on. That's yeah, what it looked like yeah, to me. It yeah. does. But it's like strangely yeah. like... and uh, Which I found strangely enjoyable in the same way as I did want to work with a woman who had a dog that looked exactly like Bette Davis towards the end of her life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, then we learn that the Trump is a player. The and Trump. The Trump. The Trump. <laughs> well, there you go. That was a Freudian slip. We'll leave that one in. And then we go to the pound. Now, you've seen this film. The pound is full of dogs that are sobbing. It was probably the most bleakest yeah. thing I've ever seen in but a also Disney film. The, when the dog goes off to go through the one-way door, which is yeah. how they describe it, and the dog doesn't know, all the other dogs seem to know, yeah. but that one dog is quite happy and, yeah. and jaunty, and that was, it was crushing, and yeah. I'm 42. Yeah. It's hard. I don't know how they make children watch that, but... We also get a scene where, or conversely, we also get a scene where everyone's so happy that someone gets their accordion out. Way! <laughs> um, and there's a bit where Lady and the Tramp have a lovely, lovely night out, which of course is accompanied by a god awful song explaining exactly how lovely the night is. Um, and they wind up in like Lover's Lane, and everyone's looking down to the town from their horse-drawn carriages. And I thought, you know, at this point, this film could seamlessly turn into a horror film right there. But alas. Anyway, the whole thing culminates in this weird wild bunch type showdown where the two old dogs see their chance to make one last difference in the world. And then everybody lives happily ever after and has more puppies. And Lady finds has found her cynical bit of rough and successfully tamed him. Yeah, right. Shouts womankind. Happens to me every week. (laughs) Every week. Yeah. Uh, Released from a pound. Yeah. (laughs) So in answer to the question, did I like it? The answer is no. Did you I, like it, Sarah? No, I, I think it, it, in my head I was like, oh, this will be fun because I remember enjoying it as a five-year-old. Yeah. But I also liked Angel Delight then and I had that recently. Uh, it's not great. What? Banana. Powdery. Oh, Banana oh, was, Angel oh, Delight is the good shit. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. noted. Thanks. Well, on the shopping list, but a scotch. It was all right. I was glad it was an hour and a quarter. That's I, never a good thing to say about a film. Oh, it, I still felt too long. And I just don't think there was enough story well, there is a lot of story, but weirdly, it's not at all engaging. There's like there is lots of sort of weird like. There's more plot than Cinderella. There's more plot than Cinderella, for example. Mm, I suppose. But even so, it's just not. There was no. I didn't feel any jeopardy though. Did you? Feel no, it jeopardy? seemed to me like what they should have done is have a short setup and have those two having loads of adventures together. Yeah. And that because that's the fun bit basically because they go to a zoo, they meet a beaver. It's I mean. Oh, the beaver is excellent. Yeah. But also when they do have babies at the that. end, no, the babies at the end, all the boy babies look, look like, like him. him, and all the girl babies look like that's her. How it works. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do look exactly the same as my mum. So there you go. Oh, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe that is accurate then. 
And also, yeah. I don't. And my brother looks like a Highland Terrier. <laughs> I generally don't like any films where the end and his babies. Like no. this will be okay because there's babies now. Yeah, I hate that. Well, there's babies and there's puppies. Yeah, yeah. Double cross for me. Yeah, Don't and I love dogs. Puppies, I, I like it. Yeah, but they're just coloured in. Yeah, they're not real. What? Well, you couldn't wipe your ass on one. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't it's smear. Print, print it out. Print it. Someone off. in your house might have something to say about what you've done to the telly as well. <laughs> It's not going to go down well in a shared flat, um, is it? Can we talk about how Jen really likes the racist cats? <laughs> I, right, so... What is it about the racist cats that you enjoy so much, Jen? What I like about them, really, is... Uh, they have a good I, I would just like to say, I haven't watched this film since I was a child. Since you were a racist. Since I was a racist yeah. child. <laughs> yeah, I do live it. I don't live there anymore. I am from, you know, like the UKIP heartland, mate. You, you know. still the UKIP shop. I know. Um, we had a lovely shop. Yeah. It's like, it's a yeah. It's like a weird. Oh, yeah, I've got a lovely fridge magnet. <laughs> they've bought like a cafe and then they've put loads of weird propaganda on the front of it and then it says, like, you know, believe in Britain again or something weird. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're well into that where I'm from. But that's not why I like the cats. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my family, we're not like that. But what we are like is we like cats. Okay. And as like so it's little, the cat bit, not the racist little bit. Jen but, was like, look at the cats. But they're evil cats. Well, they're, they're really playful. horrible. No, they're not. They're no, they're evil. Awful. Yeah, they're really awful. Yeah, but cats. Everyone, people say that about cats all the time. They've just got a bad. But I, mean, I actually, I actually think cats. Disney actually doesn't like cats. I think Walt Disney doesn't like cats. I think it's pretty <laughs> obvious doesn't. in When's all of his main... films that that basically all the cats. cats. That, that's all right. A, that's about With it. Facts. That's, a, that's about it, though. The, the, the cats, the baddie, and Cinderella. There's the cats because they do like mice. Cats are always like perceived as those cunt sweet mice. Oh, oh because because a cat could attack Mickey Mouse. Is that what you're seeing? I, I think that's the long and short of it. Yeah. But also, they, they kind of like dogs too. There's they a lot do. of dogs in Disney films. Man's so. best friend, isn't yeah. it? Well, no. Wait a minute. If the only thing that you can't buy in all of human history is the wag. Of a dog's tail. I bet you could. That's not what be- the Beatles said, though. It doesn't doesn't quite go, can't it buy me the yeah. work of a dog's tail. It doesn't quite scan, <laughs> No, it, it doesn't. <laughs> Get McCartney on the phone. <laughs> and, of course, you know, looking at America, the only thing that you can't buy is you buy a presidency, but you can't buy a sensible brain to do it. No. Well, yeah. On that, on that yeah. bombshell, that disappointing, distraught bombshell. Um, Hannah, what score are we giving Lady well, Trump? you know what? It's, it's dull. Um, and that's unforgivable in a film, mm-hmm. and it's kind of racist, and as Sarah pointed out, it is relatively short. And it does create this ridiculous idea in young girls that you can find, like, a wild man, and they like, bring him home you and make can. him happy by you having children. You just need to put children. a collar on him. That's yeah. what we've learned from that film. Put a just, collar on him. Yeah. I can change him. <laughs> so I'm going to give it two, don't try and change me, sneers <laughs> out of five. That's it from us this week, much of which was recorded from the Edinburgh Fringe, where I'm currently sitting in a room next to quite a busy road, so if you do hear the occasional bus, well, that's the end now, so it doesn't really matter, does it? Anyway, we're back next week with Deborah Jane Appleby, who's talking about gaming, Kiri Pritchard-McLean and Rachel Fairburn from the All Killer No Filler podcast are joining us for a podcast exchange, and I'm talking to Judy Murray about her book Knowing the Score and some hot tips hopefully for the US Open. If you like what you heard today, you can hear all of our previous pod zines and gig casts on iTunes or Podomatic and we would love you to rate and review us. Um, ideally, well, please. Uh, if you're one of these ones who say, I liked it when it was a magazine, you can fuck off, to be honest. Anyway, moving swiftly onwards. Our music was written and recorded by Barry Hilton, all rights reserved. Thanks to David Young, Mary Young and John Clare for their help with the stings. We'd love to hear from you, so if you want to get in touch and tell us we're great or you'd like to hear more about this or that, give us a shout on mailbag at standardissuemagazine.com. You can follow us on Twitter at StandardIssueUK, find us on Facebook or even Instagram. Yeah, that's right, kids, Instagram. As well as that, we have an archive full to brimming with excellent, excellent stuff. You can find that online at www.standardissuemagazine.com. Currently, 
You can find out information about our events, of which we have many. We've just done a run in Edinburgh at The Fringe. We have gigs coming up in London on a monthly basis. We've got shows in Leamington and at the Cheltenham Festival. And there'll be more coming up, so keep your eyes peeled on that. Check out Sarah's website where there's a third of her website dedicated to us. That's right, us. You can find that at www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. That's all from me now and this quite busy road. All that remains for me to say now is stay frosty champs.